From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm excited to present my guest today, my all-time favorite cleric, Bishop John Shelby Spong. He was Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Newark, New Jersey for 24 years before he retired in 2001. He's written 24 books that uh, at least a dozen of them are on my personal bookshelf. Uh, the titles of some of these books are Why Christianity Must Change or Die, The Sins of Scripture, Jesus for the Non-Religious. He was on my program last year. We talked about his book at that time, which was new, Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World. And he's with me today to speak about his latest book, The Fourth Gospel, Tales of a Jewish Mystic. Welcome back, Bishop Spong, to Religion for Life. Thank you, John. It's wonderful to be with you. Uh, the fourth gospel is, of course, the gospel of John in the New Testament. And the, the first sentence of your book in chapter one is this. Throughout most of my professional career, I was not drawn to the fourth gospel. Indeed, I found it almost repellent. Uh, why did you find the gospel of John almost repellent? Well, there are two reasons. One is that Jesus seemed to lose his humanity in this gospel. He's portrayed as a preexistent visitor from outer space. He's portrayed as knowing what people are thinking while he's talking to them. Into his mouth is inserted the, the Jewish name for God, I am, on a number of occasions. At Gethsemane in the garden, there is no prayer for this cup to be taken from him. It's almost as if he can't wait to get to the cross. And indeed, the cross is referred to in the fourth gospel as the moment of Jesus' glorification. It's the climax of the fourth gospel, not the resurrection, not the ascension. So I could not relate to this Jesus. He did not seem to have enough humanity for me to connect with him. The second reason is a, a more overt one. The fourth gospel has passages that have been traditionally read as encouraging anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. uh, when the fourth gospel uses the phrase, the Jews, quote unquote, it almost spits them out of its mouth with derision. And Jesus is even quoted as calling the Jewish people the children of the devil. Uh, that's been pretty heavy throughout Christian history, and I didn't—I just didn't like the fact that part of the biblical story seemed to encourage this violent behavior. So I never really cared for this book, and I tried to spend a lot of time just avoiding it, walking around it. I couldn't get it out of the Bible, so I just sort of ignored it, left it there. But uh, you've changed, and it's in fact been fairly recently that you've found a new appreciation for this fourth gospel. Yep, that came in two ways. Uh, one is that I was doing some work on the Jewish background of all the gospels, and I ran into a book by an English author named Eileen Goulding about the, the liturgical background of the synagogue behind the writing of the fourth gospel, which just really intrigued me. Uh, the fourth gospel seems to be written on a three-year liturgical calendar style and not a one-year as Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written. People seem to think that Jesus had a one-year public ministry if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and a three-year public ministry if you read John. I think the fact is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke trace Jesus' ministry over a one-year liturgical cycle and John traces it over a three-year liturgical cycle and I have no earthly idea how long Jesus' public ministry was. So I put it into a Jewish context and that began to open some doors. And the second reason was that I began to, to do some work on a book that was published in 2009 about life after death called Eternal Life and New Vision. And that got me into a study of consciousness and ultimately into a study of mysticism. 
which in many parts of religious tradition is a, is a faith source that transcends the limits of consciousness. And I began to read the fourth gospel in terms of both Jewish eyes and Jewish mystical eyes. And suddenly it read very differently. It's not about incarnation. It's not about God coming out of some foreign place into the flesh of a human being. It's much more about a human being coming to the place where that human being is one with God and God flows in him or her and he or she lives in the reality of God. It's a mystical union and not an incarnational union. And I found that just far more appealing when I try to talk about the meaning of God in the 21st century. Well, the subtitle of your book is Tales of a Jewish Mystic. Can you tell us more about what, what, what is a mystic? Well, it's one of those wonderful words used in religion that I think stays undefined so that everybody can use it to mean whatever they want it to mean. Okay. I think it, uh, what mysticism means to me is a concept of God that forces you to go beyond the boundaries of words. Uh, I think the creeds point to God. I don't think the creeds capture God. I think the scriptures point to the God presence, the God experience, but I don't think the scriptures capture that presence. And the deeper I live in my Christian faith, the more I find that words are a very inadequate vehicle, but they're all that we have. And the mystical experience seems to be the experience that gets beyond words into what I call wordless wonder, where you can contemplate the meaning of God and the, and the rising sense of consciousness without ever being able to define it. And I don't know how to define it. I can't even define the word God, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think anybody that thinks they can define God has become an idolater. They've, what they've done is to create their own definition and enforce God into it. And that means you're worshiping something that you created. Uh, the wonder of, of my faith is that, that the reality of God constantly breaks open all scriptures, all creeds, all theologies, all doctrines, all dog- dogmas, and leads you into a place of of the inability to articulate that experience with words any longer. And that's what John's gospel does for me over and over again. Uh, That's why uh, John's Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not talking about a religious system. And people use that text because he winds up saying, no one comes to the Father but by me. People use that as a missionary imperative and a way to judge other religions uh, because no other religions is good as mine. I have the true faith. I have the I control the doorways to the only God, which is, again, nothing more but idolatry, but all religions seem to participate in that. What Jesus is talking about, I think, is that when you transcend the limits of the human, you come through the same process that he has come through so that you enter into an experience of the divine that is limitless. You, From your perspective, um the Gospel of John has been misread, not only by modern people, uh, you just talked about that, but also even in early Christian history by those who formulated the early creeds. Uh, how, how did they misread this book? I think that's very true. Uh, first of all, all four of the Gospels are Jewish books, Jewish to their core. And as long as Jewish people were members of the Christian community, then they were able to understand these Gospels quite well because they they lived inside the culture and the history and the background, and they understood the symbols. By the time you get to about 140 or 150 of this common era, there was hardly a Jew left in the Christian movement. And from about 150 till about the middle of the 20th century, the only people reading, writing commentaries on, and talking about the four Gospels were Gentiles, and they were profoundly ignorant of Jewish background and Jewish perspective. 
And so they turned the, the Gospels into literal stories. The Nicene Creed seems to me to do that, and it adopts a creed, fascinating creed, uh, when you analyze the Nicene Creed. And, and it, what it does is to act as if you can capture the holy and the symbols of, of the human. The Nicene Creeds come out of a Greek philosophical understanding, a dualistic point of view, where God and human life are direct contrast, where heaven and earth are direct contrast, where bodies and souls are direct contrast, where flesh and spirit are direct contrast. And so the creeds spend an awful lot of time trying to figure out how Jesus, who is proclaimed to be God and of heaven and of spirit and of soul, somehow got manifested in humanity, in flesh, in a body, and the Christian church wrestled with that for about 500 years and never really solved it. They came up with a, with a statement at the Council of Ephesus in 451 that said, we can't explain it, but it's both and and not either or, which is a, sort of a, an interesting dodge. And I think what we've done in, in the years since is to escape this dualistic thinking and begin to see, see all of life as one unfolding whole, to see God and the human as not opposite sides of a, of a con construct, but as dimensions of one another. I think if you want to be divine, you have to become deeply and fully human and transcend the boundaries of humanity to enter into the, the mystical communion with God. And I think that's what the fourth gospel is about. And therefore, it brings with a new kind of authenticity to me, which I am deeply appreciative of. Let me say one thing further. Uh, one of the ways I got to this conclusion is that when I read John carefully, I found that he is almost as much at war against literalizing his Jesus stories as I am. I think the thing that kills Christianity is to literalize the stories. And that's basically what the fundamentalists do, and the fundamentalists come in both a Catholic and a Protestant variety. I don't think you can literalize them, and John says that. And some of the illustrations of that are that John has Jesus say to a man named Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is a literalist. He's a fundamentalist. He says, what do you mean born again? How can I, a grown man, climb back into my mother's womb and be born? Uh, that's a literalism, literalism that becomes nonsensical. And that's not what Jesus means. And he goes on to try to explain, but Nicodemus is rather thick and cannot understand. In the very next chapter, Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman by the well, and it's about water. He initiated this conversation by asking her to provide him with a drink. And after the conversation went on, Jesus says to this woman, if you knew who it was who was talking to you, you would ask him for water and he would give you living water. And this woman is a literalist. She's a fundamentalist. And so she looks at Jesus and says, man, you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to draw any water for me? She didn't really understand what he's talking about. That goes on all through the gospel, this ridicule of those people who would literalize these stories and these symbols. And that was part of the key for me to opening John's gospel to something other than what I had always thought it was. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Bishop John Shelby Spong. He's the author of a new book, The Fourth Gospel, Tales of a Jewish Mystic. And, and one thing to be clear, Bishop Spong, uh, the Gospel of John, or Jesus in the Gospel of John, is not the historical person of Jesus, nor are any of the characters' uh, historical uh, biographies. They're, they're all symbols. The Fourth Gospel well, is, uh, to put that, it crudely, fiction. Is that right? That was That was my conclusion. That's not a conclusion that everybody has arrived at, but it's certainly one to which I have arrived. And, and I see that now more profoundly than I ever have before. John, 
John has bookend characters at the beginning and end of his story, which sort of signal you are not to literalize these characters. In the first chapter, he has Jesus go through a long conversation with a man named Nathaniel, who is called into discipleship. And in John's gospel, Nathaniel is clearly one of the 12. Now, the only problem with that is Nathaniel's never been mentioned before. John has written its final form between 95 and 100. Paul never mentions Nathaniel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke never mention Nathaniel. So if Nathaniel was one of the 12, you wonder where he came from. And it's a very interesting sort of story, and, and it made me believe that Nathaniel was a symbol in Paul's mind, I mean in John's mind, a symbol actually for Paul. That was an idea I got from a Canadian scholar around the turn of a century named E.F. Scott, and incorporated in with full credit to that man. Then when you get to the end of the gospel, uh, suddenly a brand new character is introduced who is even more intimate than Nathaniel. Uh, he's called the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's introduced in chapter 13, and he becomes the star of that drama from chapter 13 to chapter 20, when he is the one who sees the empty tomb and is the first to believe. Now, who is this beloved disciple? Well, if you go back through Christian history, People have written enormous tomes trying to prove there's one, John Zebedee, that was the popular choice until about the 19th century when people realized how impossible that was. Other people have been considered are James, the brother of Jesus, Thomas, who is called a twin, Mary Magdalene, and even Lazarus after he was raised from the dead. Some people have actually suggested that he was the beloved disciple and the author of this book. Well, Rudolf Buchmann, who wrote, I think, the great commentary on John's gospel in the 20th century, suggested to me, and maybe in the New Testament world for the first time, that the beloved disciple is one more of these mythological characters, that he's a symbol for the ideal believer, the one who really understands what Jesus is about. And John weaves the Jesus story around him, making him the, the gatekeeper and the one who, who first sees and first understands and first believes as the ideal kind of disciple. But when you realize that these two bookend characters, Nathaniel on one end, the beloved disciple on the other, are probably mythological, then you have to look at all the other characters. Again, it's very fascinating that nobody in Matthew, Mark, or Luke ever knew about somebody named Nicodemus. They never knew about the Samaritan woman by the well. They never knew about the man who was crippled for 38 years. They never knew about the man who was born blind. And they never knew about Lazarus who was raised from the dead. I now think they didn't know about them because John had not yet created them and that they are literary creations. They've got as much historicity as, as Harry Potter and Sherlock Holmes and Jane Eyre and Wonder Woman. Now, when you begin to say the characters in the Bible are mythological, people be begin to think, well, you're saying the biblical story is just a fairy tale. That's not what I'm saying at all. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that John's gospel is trying to communicate to us something so profoundly deep that he has to transcend all of the barriers of our humanity in order to communicate his message. And the only way he can do this is to create these mythological characters who symbolize various ways that people respond to the, the Christ presence. And once I opened that door on the fourth gospel, it began to ring with just great authenticity. Uh, it, this is the most fun book I've ever written. It was as if it just wrote itself as insight after insight once you break the door open, the insights all begin to fit together in a brand new way. And I really just had a wonderful time pouring it out. You know, modern people, we, uh, we tend to think of things as true or false in regards to whether they are fact or non-fact. And uh, can you put us into the mindset of the author or the authors of the Gospel of John? How would they have understood 
what they're doing with the story of Jesus, as well as the stories in the Jewish tradition that, that they use to shape these tales. How did they think? Well, I think what they recognized was, that first of all, they were Jews, and they knew that there's a great storytelling tradition in the Jewish tradition. Uh, in the, if you go back and read the Bible carefully, you'll find that Moses' stories are retold about Joshua, and then they're retold about Elijah, and then they're retold about Elisha. So it should not surprise us that Jewish writers would wrap Moses' stories, Joshua's stories, Elijah's stories, and Elisha's stories around Jesus of Nazareth as a way of, of projecting him and understanding him into the audience, which was Jewish, which would have understood this. If you read Matthew's Gospel, for example, you'll find in the very first chapter we're told that a wicked king named Pharaoh, I mean named Herod, went down to Bethlehem and killed all the Jewish boy babies trying to get rid of the promised deliverer. Every Jew would have recognized that as a Moses story. When Moses was born, a wicked king named Pharaoh went down to Egypt and killed all the Jewish boy babies. That was a signal by a Jewish author named Matthew to a Jewish community for which he was writing that he's going to tell the story of Jesus against the background of the holiest life that Jews could imagine, namely the life of Moses. And he's going to expand the Moses story beyond Moses' limits because that's the only way he knows how to communicate what he believes he has experienced in Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the Bible is full of that. But Gentiles do not understand that storytelling tradition. Again, one of the ways that Jews ind indicate to their readers that this is fiction and not literal history is that they exaggerate. The great Jewish story of exaggeration is Jonah, you know, a mm -hmm. great fish big enough to swallow a man whole and, and in which he can live for three days and three nights is the star of that story. Now, every Jewish person would have known that that kind of exaggeration is exactly like beginning a story once upon a time and they lived happily ever after at the end. You're telling a story, you're telling a fable. That doesn't mean it's not true, this profound truth in a fable, but it's not literally true. One of the things that John does is to show exaggeration everywhere. In the story of Jesus changing water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, that's in chapter 2. He doesn't just change water into wine, he changes it into 160 gallons of wine. Now that's quite a bit to uh, keep a party going, that should manage it. He doesn't just heal a blind man, he heals a blind man who was born blind. He does not just heal a cripple, he heals a cripple who was crippled for 38 years. He does not just raise a person from the dead. He raises from the dead a man named Lazarus, who's not only been dead for four days, but he's actually been buried. He's been wrapped in his burial clothes, and the text in John's Gospel says already his flesh has begun to decay. Everything is exaggerated throughout this story. Now, that's a Jewish technique to warn the readers you're not to literalize this. So what is John doing? John is like a, an artist. John is painting a portrait to try to capture the experience he had of meeting God in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And you paint a portrait, it's not literal. You paint a portrait to try to capture the whole of the life, not an individual moment, it's not a photograph. And when people read the Gospel of John, they should read it the way people read a photograph, you, I mean, read a, a portrait. You stand in front of the portrait until you can discern the author's technique, the author's attempt to interpret until the character that the author has created in this portrait begins to speak to you with some kind of integrity. Now, that's the Jewish way of doing things. And unfortunately, I think for the Christian world, we have lost that Jewish storytelling ability, that Jewish ability to recognize truth inside story. 
and that ability to say that only through the language of myth can you expand the human vocabulary sufficiently so that you can talk with any sort of meaning about the presence of God in the life of Jesus. And that might be a way in which we understand uh, other metaphors that are used in the Gospel of John, such as being born from above, or uh, even resurrection as really invitations uh, to become well, authentically human. Uh, they're not supposed to about rising from the dead as that's, such. That's exactly right. Now, the idea that, that resurrection should be understood as the physical resuscitation of a corporeal body is a very late developing idea. You don't find it in the Gospels in any form, any full form, until you get to Luke about the last years of the ninth decade or the early years of the of the tenth decade. And one of the fascinating things about John's resurrection story, and I, I really broke that down, I think there are four distinct resurrection stories. And the first one is with Mary Magdalene, and what she is saying is, you've got to let the physical go. Do not cling to me, Jesus says to her. Second one's about the beloved disciple who believes, though he sees nothing but an empty tomb, he doesn't see a resuscitated body. And the last one is the one where Thomas appears, and the whole message is, Thomas, the real blessed ones are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, you, you are sort of a dullard. So you had to be given a vision so you would believe, but the real blessed ones are those who don't have that physical evidence and who, who that is not a facet in why they believe or don't believe. You know, when you watch football games on television now and then, someone will lift up a placard that says John 14.6 or John 3.16, and those who present those placards think uh, that those verses are about Jesus dying for your sins, and only by believing that you'll go to heaven and not hell. Uh, you would say this substitutionary atonement theory, Jesus dying for sins, is not within the text of the fourth gospel. I think gospel. that's one of the biggest distortions of Christianity in all of our history. And I think it's a distortion because people didn't understand Jewish worship. The idea of, of a victim dying for our sins comes out of the Jewish liturgical observance of the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur, where a lamb who was considered to be perfect and therefore the kind of symbol that symbolizes what human beings yearn to be. The, the lamb was physically perfect, no scratches, no blemishes, no broken bones. And since the lamb could not decide to choose to do evil, the lamb was considered symbolically to be morally perfect. So he becomes a symbol of all that human beings want humanity to be. And that lamb is slaughtered in Yom Kippur. And the blood of that lamb is smeared on the mercy seat of God in the Holy of Holies by the high priest who only goes into the Holy of Holies on that day every year. And then only after being cleansed through some elaborate liturgical process. Now, when the blood of the Lamb is spread on the mercy seat of God, then the people can say, no matter how evil you and I have been, we can still come to God if we come through the symbol of ourselves as perfect, namely through the blood of the Lamb of God. And so we get this all this substitutionary stuff going on, which creates, a, I think, the strangest theology in the world. If the only way God can forgive us is to kill the divine son instead of punishing you and me for what we deserve, uh, then, then God becomes an ogre, a monster who does not know how to believe, how to forgive. And why didn't God just say, I forgive you? You know, you've messed your world up, you've messed your life up, but I still love you and I forgive you. That's what every parent would do to a wayward child. But no, God demands a human sacrifice and a blood offering in this kind of theology. And it turns Jesus into a perpetual victim. Well, he can hardly wait to mount his cross. He's probably a masochist. He loves suffering turns God into a child abuser, the ultimate child abuser, because God is punishing the divine son instead of 
you and me who need to be punished. It turns you and me into nothing except guilt-laden creatures. We become Christ killers. My sins cause the death of Jesus. That's a pretty heavy burden. But the nicest thing about it is that none of that is true. Uh-huh. Uh, that's, and we now know that's not true. Uh, the, this, uh, this theology was built on a premise that there was once upon a time an original perfection in the world and in human life. We've known since Darwin that, that this world started in physical matter and physical matter later produced life and life later produced consciousness and consciousness later produced self-consciousness and that there was no such thing as an original perfection. And if there's no, no original perfection, there cannot be a place from which we have fallen. So the idea of original sin is just absolute nonsense. It needs to be punted by the Christian faith. And if, if there is no fall, then you cannot portray Jesus as the one who rescues us from the fall because the fall never happened and one who restores us to our original perfection, which, of course, we never had. So the whole thing falls apart. And if we don't begin to understand Jesus not as the rescuer of the fallen or the redeemer of the lost or the savior of the sinful and begin to discover Jesus as the presence of God calling us into a deeper and fuller sense of what it means to be human, then I think we've missed the Christian faith. And I don't think this kind of uh, guilt-producing, Jesus died for my sins theology will enable the church to live another hundred years. I think it's the death knell. And I really think we've got to get beyond that. John's gospel does that for me. That's why I was so excited about it. That's why John makes the crucifixion the climax of his gospel because his portrayal of Christ on the cross is a human being who is so fully human that he has escaped the human biological drive to survive, and he's able to give his life away, even to love those who are taking his life from him. That's a powerful portrait. And Jesus says, when I am lifted up on the cross and people can see this, then they will know the meaning of God. They will know this this life presence, this love force, this ground of being that enables us to live and to love and to be. And that's a Christianity that I think has an enormous future. Bishop John Shelby Spong, my guest, author of the fourth gospel, Tales of a Jewish Mystic. We're just about out of time. Uh, Bishop Spong, when you write your books, you indicate that the, the one you're writing will be your last. And thankfully, for the benefit of all of us, you never keep your promise. Uh, is there another book in the works for you? Well, yeah, you know, I've written six last books. I think it gets to be ludicrous after a while. I don't intend to write a book. I am now deep in a study of Matthew's gospel, and I'm finding it almost as thrilling as John. It would take me three or four years to complete the study and write the book. I don't know whether I'll do that or not. I don't know that I've got that many years to live in my life. When you reach 82, you you don't buy green bananas. You buy ripe bananas. <laughs> you never know when the next day will bring. But uh, if... You know, if that study is as rich as it certainly appears to me to be now, and if I have enough time, my motivation is to share my learning with the world. And that may mean another book, but I don't want to be committed to it. And I refuse to have a contract with my publisher, HarperCollins, because we work in a different way. I write a book and then I notify them that I've got a book. And then they send me a contract and then I sign it and then they publish the book. And so there's no pressure. I don't have to meet any deadlines. I guess you can do that after you've been a fairly successful author. I wouldn't recommend that to a a person writing his first book. But at this point, that's the way I operate. And every morning I go to my study by 6 o'clock in the morning, and I don't usually come out until about 10. And I spend that time wrestling deeply with Matthew's gospel. I've read maybe 30 books on Matthew since I got rid of John off my desk. 
and I'm finding it very exciting. And whether whether it's a book, whether I just use it as a series of lectures, whether I write my columns on Matthew's gospel over a period of time, I don't know. But uh, if it's a book, that'll come in three or four more years. Bishop Spong, with much appreciation to you, thank you for being with me on Religion for Life, and thank you for your work, including your latest book, The Fourth Gospel, Tales of a Jewish Mystic. Nice to have you on the program. Thank you, John. Wonderful to be with you. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee, FPC, elizabethton.org, our webpage. You can find more information about this program, upcoming shows, links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Follow us on Facebook, iTunes, and Twitter. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well.